0: Hello everyone, my name is Nancy Porter and I am again happy to share with you articles from Time Magazine. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use or dupl- duplication is permitted. So this article is from the brief section of Time Magazine, January 16th through January 23rd, 2023 issue. Headline, The Company Fighting the Abortion Information War. Dr. Jennifer Lincoln has amassed nearly 3 million followers on TikTok through her frank videos about sex, abortion, and reproductive care. Now, the Oregon-based OBGYN is taking on a new role as executive director of Mayday Health, a health education nonprofit designed to help patients in states that have banned abortion figure out how to get abortion anyway. Lincoln and Mayday are on the front lines of the next battle over abortion rights, the Information War. Mayday launched on the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade with the goal of spreading the word about abortion pills, two medications prescribed by a doctor that, when taken within 48 hours of one another during the first trimester, can safely terminate a pregnancy. For patients living in states where abortion is banned, Mayday lays out the step-by-step process for obtaining the pills through the mail and provides medical information about safety and reliability. The most valuable message anybody can spread is telling the folks who live in those states how they can still make decisions about their own bodies, says San Kopelman, a co-founder of Mayday. A wave of new restrictions have curtailed sources of reliable information about reproductive health. Doctors across the country are caught in legal limbo about how to advise patients. In some states where abortion is banned, even school administrators and library workers are discouraged from talking about abortion. More than 50% of abortions in the U.S. in 2020 were medication abortions, and requests for abortion pills have surged since Roe was overturned. Yet, many patients don't know that the pills are safe or how to get them. Mayday is focused on delivering that message. After the last abortion clinic in Mississippi closed, Mayday put up signs in Jackson saying, pregnant, you still have a choice, with a link to its website. When the University of Idaho blocked staff from counseling students about abortion, Mayday drove a digital billboard through campus that read, they don't want you to know this, You can still get abortion pills by mail. The 501c3 organization has partnered with social media influencers and spent thousands of dollars on Google ads targeting core demographics who might need abortions. It's particularly focused on low- to middle-income women aged 18 to 44 who live in states that heavily restrict abortion. Mayday doesn't manufacture or provide the abortion pills, It simply provides information about how patients can get them. We can tell people nothing, or we can use free speech to point people toward resources that do exist, says Lincoln, and people can decide what they want to do for themselves. All right, let's look at another article in the same issue of Time magazine from January 16 to 23rd. This one is titled The D.C. Brief by Philip Elliott. He is the Washington correspondent for Time magazine. From the outside, the Democratic Party has enjoyed a good run lately, beating historical trends in the House, holding the Senate, and expanding its power in state capitals. That doesn't actually merit that success in November's midterm elections or can depend on it going forward. The party's image remains in fixer-upper mode, and its agenda isn't terribly popular. As one sharp strategist put it in an election-eve memo, if Democrats manage to hold on to the House and Senate, it will be in spite of the party brand, not because of it. To channel President Joe Biden, that is not hyperbole. The warnings were manifest. One Democratic research project ahead of Election Day found that the party was seen as rejecting capitalism. Others warned that Democrats were taking voters of color for granted. Yet another survey showed a 55% majority of all voters saw the Democratic Party as preachy and too extreme and none too loving of the U.S. of A. The main reason Democrats prevailed was this. Republicans came off as more extreme in specific places. Communities where 7% to 13% of typically reliable GOP voters just could not pull the lever for Senate nominees in competitive races. But hoping the GOP keeps nominating unelectable candidates just isn't a responsible strategy. There has to be something better and it has to start in the Democrats' own tent. From Labor Day to late October, Republican-allied groups spent $115 million on ads criticizing Democrats on crime and immigration in the top eight Senate races, a three-to-one ownership of that space. Public safety, in other words, known as open borders, and defund the police accounted for 45% of Republicans' messaging in the final weeks. And, absent some bad GOP nominees, it might well have worked. Nationally, voters who said crime was their top issue broke roughly 2 to 1 Republican. On immigration, that lopsided result was 3 to 1, according to exit polls. Had it not been for a 53-point Democratic advantage among voters who put abortion rights at the top of their list, this election's results, and the new Congress, would have been far different. Democrats had braced for a walloping that never arrived. They're still staggering and stammering, but equally unready for the sequel. All right, let's move on to another article in the same January 16th to 23rd issue of Time magazine. This one is titled On Thin Ice. It is by Elliot Ackerman, who is the author of several novels and the memoir, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. The title of the article is On Thin Ice ice. During my years in the Marine Corps, I participated in military operations as diverse as night ambushes, amphibious raids, and helicopter assaults. All required intricate planning. Gathered around maps and satellite imagery, my colleagues and I had to consider all three of the dimensions in which war is typically waged, land, sea, and air. Once our plans were laid, there was always one last step before our mission. We would synchronize our watches. This ritual acknowledged the final dimension in which war is waged, time. Too often, our our analysis of a significant conflict neglects time as a space through which armies maneuver. But in Ukraine, as winter sets in, and the war enters its second year, time will prove decisive. Time is not on Ukraine's side. A strategy of maximum pressure may provide the only path to victory, requiring Ukraine and its allies to remain relentlessly on the offensive this winter. Begin with the reality that while NATO support increases pressure on Moscow, It also places a weapon in Putin's hand by lending credence to his claims that the West is at war with Russia. It increases the likelihood that Russia will expand the scope of the war to include the use of nuclear weapons, a threat Putin habitually makes. A strategy of maximum pressure carries heightened risks, but the alternative is almost certain defeat. If the efficacy of the Ukrainian September offensive is an indicator of their capability, there is reason to believe that subsequent offensives could lead to equally significant territorial gains. But success poses its own challenges. President Vladimir Zelensky has maintained throughout the war that it will end in negotiations. Victory on the battlefield creates the route to the negotiating table. It is telling, however, that even though both sides said in late December that they were ready to talk, they did so only with conditions they must have known the other side would not meet. Ukraine is fighting a war for national survival, while Russia is fighting a war of choice. This dynamic could shift the longer the war goes on. As backing down becomes less of a possibility for Russia, the stakes of the conflict increase for its leadership. This creates a dangerous tension in which neither Russia nor Ukraine can countenance any result but total victory. This could escalate the conflict for both sides, spiraling toward the total war that many fear. In the early days of the war in 2022, NATO nations led by the U.S. proved cautious in their support of Ukraine given concerns of escalation with Russia. However, Ukrainian battlefield successes coupled with Russians' underperformance tempered those concerns. Heading into this winter, the Biden administration has taken a notably more aggressive stance. The warm welcome Zelensky received in Washington in December preceded the authorization of a record aid package and the deployment of Patriot missiles. The White House seems to understand that the war is entering a new phase. A Ukrainian winter offensive appears likely. It would take place largely in the east and would not only seize back terrain lost to Russian forces, but also keep those Russian forces off balance. This would deny the Russians the ability to rest and refit through the winter months. The Ukrainians are equally exhausted, but to be successful they will need to pull off the extraordinary dual feat of launching an offensive while simultaneously replenishing and refitting their own forces. If the Ukrainians can achieve this, they will be well positioned in the spring. That is when the war will be decided. A lengthy war inherently favors Russia. It increases the odds that other authoritarian nations, such as Iran or China, will become more actively involved. Iran has already provided material support, like drones, to Russia. The longer the war drags on, the more likely it becomes that other nations will follow suit. It also makes it increasingly difficult for NATO to hold together an economic alliance against Russia. A swift resolution to the war in Ukraine isn't only in the best interest of Ukraine, but also in the stability of the whole world. Although Putin, with his absurd claims of denazifying Ukraine, has often evoked the Second World War as a historical analog, Zelensky would be wise to look at Finland's victory over the Soviet Union in the Winter War as a strategic analog. Just as Putin's invasion of Ukraine was based on fears of NATO expansion, Stalin's invasion of Finland in November of 1939 was based on fears of a non-communist, nationalist Finland- along the Soviet Union's border, particularly given Hitler's aggression in Western Europe. Also, the Red Army had launched a successful invasion of eastern Poland earlier that year, and Stalin, like Putin, had overestimated his military's capability. He had also underestimated the ferocity of Finnish national pride. Although the Finns outmaneuvered the Soviets on land, they also outmaneuvered them with regard to time. They understood that a limited window existed for them to achieve victory, and so they maintained the offensive through a punishing winter. The Ukrainians find themselves in a similar position today. A war that grinds on into a second, third, or even fourth year fatally disadvantages them. Zelensky, unlike Putin, requires the support of an alliance in order to sustain his war. The member nations of that alliance are subject to the vicissitudes of their own domestic politics. The war on Ukraine could just as easily be lost at an American or European ballot box as on the battlefield. Thus far, support for Ukraine has proved durable among allied nations. According to an October Ipsos poll, 73% of Americans believe the U.S. should continue to provide military aid. A similar poll taken in Europe showed that 61% of Germans and 63% of the French support the war. Those are strong majorities. But they are majorities that Russia is targeting. The Russians have already launched their own winter offensive one that targets Ukraine's civilian population and infrastructure, as well as an economic one that takes aim at energy and commodity prices. Even if Russia's economic warfare proves ineffective, support for Ukraine will eventually falter in the face of competing international priorities. The Russians know this. They will use the winter to replenish their forces, leveraging arms shipments from allies like Iran, while also integrating conscripts into their diminishing ranks. This build-up places urgency on Ukraine's military operations. Those operations must proceed with a coherent, integrated strategy, in which Ukraine and NATO share a similar vision of victory. Offensive operations in the dead of winter require significant resourcing, which the U.S. has until recently provided at a too-sluggish pace that has struggled to keep up with Ukrainian demand. At every juncture, whether it's been the provisioning of javelins, HIMARS, or switchblade drones, Ukrainians have deployed these weapons responsibly and with devastating effects. If the Biden administration wants Ukraine to win... His window to arm it with weapons that will provide a decisive advantage is quickly narrowing. It is imperative that Ukrainian and NATO strategists use this winter to set conditions favorable for a massive Ukrainian counteroffensive when the weather turns. If the Russians are given time to rest and refit, they will be the ones to resume the offensive. This isn't to say that Ukraine doesn't also possess inherent advantages. One of the most significant is counterintuitive. Ukraine possesses a manpower advantage over the Russians. Throughout history, Russia's vast territory has granted it an equally large population to draw from, typically giving it a numerical advantage. Both Hitler and Napoleon learned through Bitter Experience, the Dangers of Awakening the, the Proverbial Russian Bear. Their armies were crushed by the resources Russia can hurl against an invader. Except in Ukraine, Russia is the invader, and it is becoming difficult for Putin to mobilize his population the way his predecessors did. The past year has demonstrated that a mobilized army is no match ...against a mobilized society. It is Ukraine that possesses the numerical advantage today. Russian conscription efforts, which have thus far provided lack support... ...are designed to offset this imbalance. It's doubtful that Russia will ever be able to mobilize an army, conscripted or otherwise... that strips the the Ukrainian population of its inherent numerical advantage. However, the passage of time allows Russia to hone its conscription efforts while the Ukrainians continue to suffer difficult-to-replace losses, balancing the scales a bit more in Russia's favor. The operational specifics of a winter offensive are difficult to predict. The Russians have, thus far, demonstrated a remarkable lack of imagination and adaptability on the battlefield. Their centralized command structure has made it difficult for them to respond to a more fluid, decentralized Ukrainian military command. Partisan activities behind Russian lines in Zaporizhzhia and Luhansk Oblast have made it difficult for the Russians to consolidate their gains the Ukrainians would be wise to capitalize on the resistance in Russian rear areas while they still can. The Russian strategy of warfare, one that is attritive and seeks to wear out their enemy, often creates risk aversion, in which commanders aren't fighting to win, so much as fighting not to lose. Reports of Russian logistical shortfalls, senseless frontal assaults, and the deaths of senior commanders all demonstrate Russia's vulnerability to a well-planned and equally well-resourced Ukrainian offensive. The Winter War, which history remembers as a Finnish victory, was ended at the negotiating table. Despite their battlefield success, the price of peace for the Finns, who had so thoroughly humiliated the Red Army, were territorial concessions that exceeded pre-war Soviet demands. In a deal that has ensured their sovereignty, the Finns yielded nearly one-tenth of their territory to the Soviets. Ultimately, it proved a wise choice, and it kept generations of Finns out from behind the Iron Curtain. In the months ahead, these kinds of decisions will confront Ukraine's leaders. As the war enters this next phase in the air, on land, and at sea, it is critical that the Ukrainians and we, their allies, make wise use of the time we have left. And the final article I will do from this issue of Time magazine, that's the January 16th to 23rd issue, is titled, Will It Go Nuclear? The Crucible of Ukraine. It is by Graham Allison, who is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University. As Putin threatens to strike Ukraine with tactical nuclear weapons, and Biden warns that this risks escalation to nuclear Armageddon, many observers have wondered aloud whether the septuagenarian or the octogenarian or both have lost touch with reality. Pundits declare Putin's thrust irrational, since according to them, no rational leader could order a nuclear strike on another state. Critics of Biden have seized on his reference to Armageddon. For example, when he recently said that, for the first time since the Cuban Missile crisis, we have a direct threat to use nuclear weapons, which could end in Armageddon as evidence of senility. Even observers less judgmental about Biden and Putin have dismissed these two leaders' talk about nuclear weapons and war as a throwback to the last century. Having come of age since the Cold War ended, many imagined that the nuclear weapons had somehow been relegated to the dustbin of history. Foreign policy experts assert that a nuclear taboo has made any use of nuclear weapons inconceivable. Failing to recognize that when one declares something to be inconceivable, that is a statement not about what is possible, but about what minds can conceive. Thankfully, Americans have a president and national security team who know better. The Biden administration has gone to such extraordinary lengths to prevent Putin from conducting a strike, because they understand that this really would set in motion a dangerous spiral that could end in full-scale nuclear war. To begin to appreciate what Biden and his team understand, it is useful to consider answers to seven questions. First, could Putin rationally order a nuclear strike on Ukraine? Unquestionably, yes, As rationally as U.S. President Harry Truman dropped the first atomic bomb at Hiroshima in 1945, killing 140,000 Japanese citizens. Indeed, Truman ordered a second strike on Nagasaki three days later, after which Japan's emperor surrendered. Second Would Putin's nuclear attack on Ukraine be a step onto a moving escalator that could end with nuclear bombs destroying American and Russian cities? Yes. Putin certainly commands a nuclear arsenal as deadly as the one wielded by leaders of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. If he strikes a Ukrainian city with a Hiroshima-sized nuclear bomb— The U.S. has made it clear it will respond in a way that has catastrophic consequences for Russia. While the U.S. response would almost certainly not include a retaliatory nuclear strike on Russia, it could mean attacking Russian military forces in Ukraine, which could lead to further Russian nuclear attacks on Ukraine. And then, in hundreds of simulations of war games by national security experts, Rarely was it possible to avoid full-scale war. Third, under what conditions would Putin be more likely than not to order a nuclear strike? Answer, if conditions on the battlefield force him to choose between a humiliating defeat on one hand and a nuclear attack that offers even a slim chance of an acceptable outcome to his war on the other If Zelensky succeeds in his current objective to liberate every square inch of Ukraine seized by Russia, including Crimea, this decisive defeat of Putin's armies would not pose an existential threat to Russia. It would, however, pose an existential threat to Putin's rule. Fourth, do Russia's current nuclear posture, doctrine, and exercises Include the first use of technical nuclear weapons? Yes. Russia's national security strategy includes a doctrine they call Escalate to De-Escalate. To counter a large-scale conventional attack on Russia, their exercises simulate a tactical nuclear first strikes against an adversary to force it to stop rather than risking further escalation. Fifth, why has the U.S. not prepared to threaten to retaliate against a Russian nuclear strike on Ukraine with an equivalent nuclear attack on Russia? Because, as Biden has said from the outset of the crisis, the U.S. will not fight World War III for Ukraine. The brute fact that Biden knows but that many of those now demanding that he move more forcefully against Putin have conveniently forgotten or want to deny, is that in relations with Putin's Russia, the U.S. continues to survive in a mutually assured destruction world. Sixth, why in these conditions did President Ronald Reagan declare a nuclear war cannot be won and must therefore never be fought. Because if the price of a war that completely destroys the enemy is the destruction of one's own society, as Reagan insisted, no one could call that a victory. Seventh, does the imperative of not fighting a war with a nuclear-armed adversary require passivity, when it acts in ways that challenge our interests? Answer, no. But these conditions do create a demand for extraordinary strategic imagination. Statesmen we now honor as the wise men developed a strategy for what came to be called the Cold War. The Cold War included a determined effort to defeat and undermine the Soviet adversary, by every means possible, except one. Bombs and bullets wielded by uniformed members of the U.S. military killing uniformed Soviet military. In crafting a strategy that is now defeating Putin's attempt to erase Ukraine from the map, the Biden administration has drawn from the earlier playbook. It has organized comprehensive Western sanctions that are crippling Russia's economy and provided arms, training, intelligence, and other support for Ukrainians on the battlefield. While it is too soon to offer judgment about the outcome of the war, at this point it seems likely that when the intense fighting subsides, Ukraine will emerge as a free, independent, vibrant nation's. Putin's war will be seen to have been a colossal strategic blunder. NATO will have been revived. And most important, there will have been no nuclear war. And those have been articles from the current issue of Time magazine, January 16th through January 23rd of 2023. And this has been a recording provided for the use of blind and print-impaired. Materials and items read on Air's LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. And it has been a pleasure to read for you. My name is Nancy Porter.